Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, December 15th, 2015, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. The next Pleiadian lineup will be in May of 2016, and we're now gathering the ninth Starseed Crystal Quest to Arkansas, which starts May 15th through the 21st. This is a reunion of a particular soul family, which we call the Crystal Soul Family, and it's identified by having at least one of these six star markings, either natal or progressed, 25, 26, or 27 degrees in Taurus, Scorpio, Aquarius, Leo, Capricorn, or Cancer. This soul group has the rites of passage where crystals are concerned, and when they come together in Arkansas, magical things happen. If you feel the call of the crystals but aren't sure if you have the markings, I'll be glad to take a quick look at your charts and let you know. Just send me your complete birth info with the date, the exact time, place, and your current location, and write to crystals, that's plural, crystals, at starseedhotline.com. We have a great show for you tonight with our special guests, authors Suzanne and Scott Ramsey, who have collaborated uh, with Frank Thayer on a new book called The Aztec UFO Incident. With over 30 years and thousands of documents from their research, interviewing people to tell the story, this book looks at one of the earliest UFO crashes with witnesses and the complete cover-up surrounding it. It's... um, a spellbinding story, and you can find the Aztec UFO incident on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, as well as other <clears throat> excuse me, national booksellers. And until the website is up, you can find the Aztec UFO incident on Facebook. At the top of the show, it's the Starseed News with Anastasia, bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Fiona and Vanya for hosting the Switchboard this evening. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com. And special thanks go to Tammy, as always, for her dedication to the forum. You can download our show podcasts on iTunes or right from our Blog Talk Radio episode page using the cloud with an arrow icon. We'd appreciate your support of our show, and you can do that by clicking follow on our show page here at Blog Talk, and then you'll get our weekly show notice. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. Remote healing sessions for people and pets are also available with Tammy. And if you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And if you'd like a stage two interpretation of that chart, please order it at least two or three months <clears throat> excuse me, ahead of time to make sure that you get it in before your 10 hours. And uh, first tonight, I would like to introduce Anastasia with the Starseed News. Hello, well, Anastasia. <laughs> Good evening, Arielle. It's great to be with you. Hello, Starseed listeners. We are going to have a really interesting show tonight. That's going to be oh, really fascinating. 
I want to hear all about it. But you have to listen to me first. <laughs> so we're going to start with tonight's news. We have a lot to talk about, a lot going on. We're going to start, as usual, with the sun, which there isn't much to say, not much going on. The sun is quiet with a slight chance of flares, according to uh, spaceweather.com. There are no sunspots actively flaring, and solar activity is low. Now, we have a Geminid meteor update. Last night, uh, NASA's network of all-sky meteor cameras detected 148 Geminid fireballs over the USA. The shower was supposed to peak on Sunday. Now, counts should decline tonight as the Earth begins to leave the debris stream. So if you get a chance and you're not sleepy, get out there and do some stargazing and see what you can find with these incoming fireballs. might be interesting. And the full moon this year is going to be an unusual full moon because the full moon rises every 29 or so days. Now, that makes the chances of a full moon landing on a special day, let's say like your birthday or even Christmas, for example, rather slim. And for the first time in 38 years, this 2015 Christmas Day will host a full moon, which won't happen again until 2034. Wow. Yeah. The full moon's going to peak just after 6 in the morning, Eastern Standard Time. And according to the Farmer's Almanac, the last full moon in the month of, uh, in December, the last full moon of the year, is called the cold moon or the big moon. And the last time a full moon rose on Christmas uh, was in 1977. What was happening then? Well, think about this. The Bee Gees were on the radio, and Saturday Night Fever was in the theaters. J.R.R. Tolkien was a best-selling author, but, of course, none of his books had been made into movies yet. So, hey, I'm sure all of you, at least those of you with the ear to the ground, have heard the talk about uh, this finding. Mm, A report has been issued by two separate teams of researchers um, inciting, by the way, skepticism in the astronomy community. But they have posted papers that describe a a different, a very different, large object that they've discovered in the outer edges of the solar system. Now, both teams made their observations after reviewing data from a cluster of radio dishes in the Chilean mountains. One of the objects was found to be near, uh, let's see if I can say this, Achillea in the night sky. And the other was adjacent to Alpha Centauri. Now, there were two objects found. Uh, Both groups found that the objects appeared to move relative to the stars behind them, relative to the stars behind them, which suggested that they might be fairly close to us and that they might be orbiting the sun. Neither group was able to gain much evidence regarding exactly what these objects would be, but both teams suggest that there's enough data to allow for ruling out that the object was an ordinary star. Now, the Swedish team nicknamed the object they observed GNA. They named it after a Nordic god known for its swiftness, and they have proclaimed to the press that they have no intention of suggesting that they have found the mythical planet X, which supposedly... uh, lies somewhere beyond Pluto. Instead, they're suggesting that it might be a large asteroid. But since this finding came out, there has been quite a bit of um, buzz around in uh, you know, the alternative communi- community about uh, this could be Planet X. So I find it very, very interesting. And you know what? They don't know anything about our solar system. I think this will be the third time in a relatively short period that I have reported new findings in the solar system. So, uh, wow. 
anyway. Is it Planet X? We'll find out. And uh, this is just fascinating, everybody. This comes off the Internet that physicists have actually succeeded with time travel. Now, you know, we talk about all the things that we're doing now. We're uh, making uh, robots that seem like people. We're talking about quantum computers. We've got to talk about free energy and flying cars and all that. And it makes uh, science fiction seem to become more and more real in our everyday life. And this is especially so because scientists from the University of Queensland, Australia, have reportedly sent particles of light into the past. Scientific American is reporting that the researchers use single particles of light, photons, to simulate quantum particles traveling through time. They have, in effect, shown that one photon can pass through a wormhole and then interact with its older self. The findings was published in Nature Communications. What do you think about that? Wow. That's incredible. It's because you well, can, you should. Oh, Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. We won't get into that. Yeah. <laughs> we won't get into that. However, I, I mean, you know, the mystics forever have been uh, saying that this is possible. And so, you know, but when they start doing it with science, well, that's another matter. But that's what they're doing. So we get into deeper and deeper water as every week passes, I'll tell you. Well, they have discovered a new dinosaur. Uh, they say They say that the Triceratops is getting a new cousin or we are discovering a new cousin of the Triceratops. Uh, they call it, let's see if I can say this, the Ceratopsia family. This is where this particular kind of dinosaur belongs. And researchers say that it was a plant-eating dinosaur, and they named it Huala Inceratops Wuka Iwanensis. <laughs> and uh, they said that it stood on its hind feet, was about the size of a spaniel. Now, that's pretty tiny, but anyway, uh, I mean, I would think a dinosaur would be the size of a house, but I guess they can yeah. in all sizes. Yeah. And they say that it's similar in age to the oldest known member of the horned dinosaurs, although, by the way, everybody, none of the horned dinosaurs were hornless. Uh, but the findings will be published um, soon, and they say that this discovery was, um, they dug up this fossil in China. So there you go, brand new fossil. Now, this is a concerning story from out of uh, Mississippi. Uh, they have found uh, first fish, and now dozens of birds have been found dead on beaches along uh, several uh, cities along the coastline of Mississippi. Uh, several birds in the Gulfport area, um, and then more birds in the Biloxi area. And uh, in Long Beach, uh, many birds are found lifeless experts are saying that it probably goes back to the December red tide, which they say is unprecedented, but nobody seems to know. In Immobile Bay, Alabama, also, there has been a widespread fish kill. It's underway as we speak. It appears to be affecting primarily filter-feeding fish, such as sardines and such as that. Now, the dead fish are present in the shallows and on the beaches on both sides of the bay. If you're familiar with that area, it goes from Point Clear to Daphne, on the eastern shore, all the way over to Fowl River on the western shore. And uh, they say the kill does not appear to be related to the tide bloom, the red tide bloom, uh, occurring right now in the Gulf of Mexico. They say that the, uh, they just don't know what it is. They, it may be connected to some other type of algae that has a similar neurotoxic effect on the fish. But again, nobody really knows. So we're losing a lot of 
aquatic life. Uh, there have been rare tornadoes that have touched down in East, East Texas. Uh, they surprised Texas Saturday afternoon. It damaged 50 homes, destroyed a bridge, and injured some people. They think that maybe two tornadoes touched down. It happened in Lindale, which is about 90 miles southeast of Dallas. And also another uh, series of tornadoes in Battleground, Washington. The National Weather Service confirmed a tornado with uh, really high winds, 104 miles an hour, that damaged dozens of buildings in Battleground, Washington. They they called it an EF1 tornado that touched down last week, uh, Thursday. And 2015 has been declared to be the worst wildfire, wildfire season in U.S. history. They say that uh, there were nearly 9.8 million acres that were burned, the equivalent of Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and a part of New Hampshire going up in flames. Now, just think about that. That's uh, three and a half states or so. Uh, Two large fires and more than 160 smaller ones right now remain active, and more fires are expected to be reported before December is over. They say that altogether they're likely to push the 2015 total past the record 9.87 million acres burned in 2006. And we have seismic activity that has been intensifying in in Azerbaijan as the country faced about 7,000 earthquakes this past year in 2015. And what I'm going to try to do, speaking of that, as we approach uh, January, I'll try to do an an overage or a uh, cover of what's happened this year, 2015, and earth changes. But in Azerbaijan, 7,000 earthquakes this year alone. Uh, They've had a magnitude of more than 80 earthquakes, uh, ranging from uh, 3.1 to 5.9 in in recent days. And they don't know why. Well, uh, Auckland, uh, New Zealand, is well known for One Tree Hill and some other really cool places that are considered to be tourist landmarks. But now through research, uh, they are discovering that these um, nice places are also reminders of the city's volcanic history and uh, in New Zealand, they're considering that maybe there could be some future problems because um, they are beginning to understand that there's a risk for volcanic eruption in Auckland. It uh, has come to the fore from doctoral research undertaken by a person at the Victoria University of Wellington. Now, they say that the area is currently dormant, but they're anticipating the fields might erupt again uh, within a few hundred years or so. And uh, there has been a mystery boom that rattles, has rattled uh, Ohio. Residents uh, in Byron, Ohio, reported hearing an, hearing an explosion uh, late last week. Nobody knew what it was. It said it rattled windows and uh, that there was the smell of smoke and sulfur. And also in Scotland, there have been mysterious loud bangs and explosion noises. Uh, people have, have no idea what that's from. Now, I will note that... Often when we are in the stream of meteor debris or from a major meteor shower, we do hear of lots of reports of booms and smoke and things like that, which, of course, would appear to um, be perhaps incoming meteors. And that seems to be a lot more frequent when we're going through these showers. There has been another earthquake swarm in Idaho, more than... Forty small earthquakes have been recorded in east-central Idaho this week in what experts say is another earthquake swarm. Now, officials in the Chalice area have reported no damage from the microquakes that started 
uh, last week on Tuesday, just after our program, uh, they said that um, they are trying to understand what's going on in the fault system because on uh, in January they experienced a 5.0 magnitude quake. So just a lot of small activity with the 5.0 peak early this year, but they're keeping an eye on it. And as you know, an entire area of the U.S. is experiencing uh, a number of swarms ongoing. Well, here's a really stupefying article. I've got a couple of things to share with you tonight about sort of how people are losing the ability to think or doing some kind of pretty dumb things. But And, and by the way, I have to confess, and I apologize, but this article did not list the state where this occurred. So take it for what it's worth. But the headline reads, Two children were arrested and jailed for two days for wearing sagging pants in school. They say that two children were released from the Hardeman County Jail after being locked in in jail or in a cage, as the article says, over the weekend for their choice of attire. It said in a shocking and secretive ruling last week, Two seniors at the Central High School were sentenced for two days behind bars for merely violating the school's dress code. In early November, a school resource officer, in an effort to protect the world from the horrors of sagging pants, charged two students with indecent exposure. Now, the officer in charge said that he had warned the students several times that the pants they were wearing were inappropriate for school, according to court documents. This man claimed that his actions were noble, as the older seniors were setting a poor example for the younger children and their future clothing choices. Oh. Yeah, that really did happen, really. There's some strange stuff going on in schools. It's no wonder many parents that can are choosing to homeschool their children. Well, here's another weird one. A town rejects a solar farm due to its worries that it would suck up all the energy from the sun. (laughs) That's right. Unbelievable. I I mean, you know, I I said, is this story a spoof? Is this like one of those spoof websites? No, it's all over the Internet. Some of our listeners here may have already heard about it. But a town of Woodland, North Carolina, is in the spotlight this week after they rejected a proposal to rezone a section of land just outside of town for the use of a solar farm. Now, Three solar farms have already been approved in the area, but the local residents are seemingly not impressed. The council defeated the motion for the rezoning uh, after a public comment period where members of the town could give their opinions. Now, A retired science teacher said... She was concerned about the rising risk of cancer deaths in the area, saying that no one could tell her that solar panels were not causing the cancer. She was also concerned that photosynthesis would slow due to the solar panels, stopping the plants from growing in the solar farm fields. She said, quote, I want to know what's going to happen. I want information. Enough is enough. I don't see the profit in it for the town. People come with hidden agendas. Until we can find if anything is going to damage this community, we shouldn't sign any paper. And on and on and on, and all of the arguments by the local officials were posted in this article. But the most interesting one was a man who said, uh, he said that solar farms would suck up all the energy from the sun. (laughs) So uh, up until now, the area just outside of this town was a popular spot for solar farm developers uh, because it has an electrical substation. 
which means that the panels can be hooked up to the national grid and be sold to power stations. But after this, they say that no more solar farms in this town of Woodland, North Carolina. So that's that. So we just uh, any of you that happen to have solar panels, you really should be ashamed. We just don't want to suck the sun dry, you know. <laughs> I mean, really. So baggy pants and sucking the sun dry. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, here's a nice article to end my newscast on. Uh, did you know that psychological science uh, says that? Providing help to friends, acquaintances, and even strangers can mitigate the impact of daily stressors on our emotions and our mental health. This is according to new research published in Clinical Psychological Science. And quote, a researcher says, I'm quoting, Our research shows that when we help others, we can also help ourselves. Stressful days usually lead us to have a worse mood and of consequently poor mental health. But our findings suggest that if we do small things for others, such as holding a door open for somebody or picking someone something up for somebody, helping somebody out in some way, we won't feel as poorly on stressful days. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's I like just that. That's old-fashioned common sense. Didn't take need a lot of clinical dollars to prove that, research dollars, but there you go. Anyway, yes, just a reminder, do kind things for others, and yes, makes us love ourselves more makes us be happy. It's a good feeling because it's the right thing to do. So anyway, we're coming up on Christmas and uh I hope everybody is not stressed. I hope you're all remembering to take care of yourselves and be good to yourselves and be joyful. That's that's good. Raise the frequency, spiral up. And uh I love y'all. We're gonna talk again next week and it's gonna be a great show tonight. So I guess it's time for me to turn it back to you, Ariel. Okay, well, thanks, Anastasia, for bringing us the Starseed News. You bet. And um, <laughs> um, on the on the topic of Christmas, I, I just wanted to interject that um, we have a Christmas holiday gift for all of our listeners and anybody that visits our website. If you go to uh, starseedhotline.com forward slash holiday gift, um, I have um, my homemade Christmas CD available for free and you can download any of the songs that you like or all of them so that's starseedhotline.com forward slash holiday gift so um, thanks so much Anastasia and you have a great week I'm going to bring Lavendar on at this time and our guests Suzanne and Scott Ramsey so let me get your mic open hello Suzanne and Scott how are you this evening well, you have Scott first, and we're doing great here in North Carolina. Well, excellent, excellent. Lavender, are you um, up and running there? I'm here. Okay, I'm great. Here. Okay. So, Scott um, and Suzanne, I, I'm very, very thrilled that you uh, wrote this book. H- how long did it take you to write this book, Scott? Uh, write it or, <laughs> or research it. Well, okay, Re- research and write. <laughs> Research, uh, just short of 30 years. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we had the first self-published book came out in 2012, and that was a book written by Frank Thayer my, and myself and Suzanne. And uh, all about a year and a half ago, we were contacted by Career Press and wanted to know if we could do an expanded version 
of the original book, and uh, we told him that the research had never stopped. We've been continuing to research the story and, and follow leads. So I would say about a year and a half. We gave him the uh, manuscript back June uh, 9th of this year, and the book just uh, hit the stores uh, last Friday, I believe. Oh, well, this is this is all new then. Uh, we're happy to uh, have you as one of our guests to, to introduce your book. So if you would, give our um, audience kind of a, a book summary about about the crash, the Aztec UFO incident, and how many people were involved, and just kind of give us um, a, a thumbnail version of how this began. Okay, the Reader's, Reader's Digest version. Yes, uh, okay, yeah. What we what we learned through the last twenty nine and three quarter years was uh, a story had gone around Aztec for many years, uh, rumored that there had been a flying saucer recovery, and of course, being New Mexico, when I first heard this back in nineteen eighty seven, I figured somebody was running the Roswell story together with Aztec. Um, but Roswell being in the southeastern part of the state of New Mexico and Aztec up in the Four Corners area, where Utah, Arizona, Colorado, and New Mexico come together, I thought that's you know 450 miles away. How, how could the how could there be that kind of confusion? Well, it turns out Roswell was July of 47, and this incident took place March 25th, 1948, about eight months later. So the book t- talks about uh, the the history of uh, the Aztec crash as covered by Frank Scully in 1950, his famous book uh, titled Behind the Flying Saucers. And Frank Scully was a very well-known writer, and he heard about the story and broke it in 1950. Uh, his book went right to the bestsellers list. It was uh, 64,000 uh, books were uh, released uh, back in 1986-87, a second book was written called UFO Crash at Aztec, A Well-Kept Secret, and that was written by Bill Steinman and Wendell Stevens. And uh, they did both did exceptional work in the research. And, uh, and then, uh, of course, our book came out in 2012 where we had a more expanded version. And Bill Steinman, by the way, has helped us along the way. Uh, he actually wrote the foreword for the the new book, which just hit the streets, and it's called the UFO, the Aztec UFO Incident, and it's uh, put out by myself, uh, Dr. Frank Thayer, and Suzanne, my wife. Uh, preface by Stanton Friedman and foreword by Bill Steinman, and it just covers the history as we have researched it of a large 100 foot diameter flying saucer that came down on a mesa back in March of 1948. And it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating story. I, I've been stuck with it all these years. And uh, we're very proud of the book, and all the and lots of people helped write this book, uh, not just there and Suzanne and I. And uh, So I'm noticing that you, you talk about 16 people, including ranchers, oil field workers, a county commissioner, a preacher, and police, uh, were all there uh, and to witness this. Uh, That's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, can you talk a little bit about how many bodies they found and and what did they do with the bodies? That that number varies anywhere from twelve to fourteen to sixteen, uh, based on who went and looked up inside the craft. 
Uh, they were small, childlike figures, three, three and a half to four foot tall, uh, all wearing a flight suit type of uniform, childlike in appearance, um, no visible markings as far as, in, as in, uh, insignias on their uniform as to rank or power. Um, the craft was virtually intact. Uh, it had a small damaged porthole, and, and it kind of did a belly landing on top of the mesa, almost like it was a controlled landing. Uh, the oil field workers kind of poked around the craft to make a very long story short and exposed a staircase. And you got to keep in mind these oil field workers were very young men. That was the beginning of the the big oil boom out there, and a lot were eighteen, nineteen, twenty years of age. And uh, I bet they were real freaked out, weren't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as we interviewed them years later, uh, they were they were it, they were still shaken. And uh, you know that was the kind of the emotional part of interviewing when they talked about we had no idea what this was. Uh, Doug Nolan said the first thing they thought it was was some kind of aeroform platform that the Air Force uh, had come up with. You know, keeping in mind 1948, three years after World War II, uh, New Mexico was a huge proving ground for everything back, you know, during the the, uh, the end of World War II and then continue, continuing right into the Cold War. So weren't so the, there some um, sightings at Los Alamos before this crash happened? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, it did not make it into the book, but we interviewed the third in command of security of Los Alamos, and he arrived there January of 1948 and said that uh, starting February of 1948, they had him, he described one sighting where one hovered about 80 feet off the ground, about 100 feet in diameter, kind of matching the, the description of the Aztec craft. Uh, to the point where they sat there and watched it for eight to ten minutes, and nobody would make up a decision uh, or give them an order of what to do with it. It finally just took off and flew to the northwest on its own. Yeah. Uh, and there were several. Uh, uh, Edwin Teller in his notes talks about flying saucers. Uh, he was, of course, you know, part of the Manhattan Project. Didn't he say later that he had seen them himself? Oh yeah, yeah. The, the notes of his uh, debriefing are on the internet, and they they are factual. They're from the the Atomic Energy Commission. Uh, that he was very upset that the uh, military wasn't doing anything about it. Yeah. He said, we we have these objects flying around and hovering, and uh, yeah. So in New Mexico in that time frame, flying saucers were a very big deal. So when you went to this location to the Mesa. And you stood there and you looked at this. So how, how did you visualize it all happening? Or, and how did they get it off off of the mesa? I mean, it's like a, a hundred hundred uh, foot craft off of a mesa. How, how do you move something like that? That's it's a huge task. And we actually, uh, th that was a burning question Suzanne and I talked about for, for many years. And so finally in uh, 2010, we decided to hire the best uh, high, wide, large object mover in the world by a gentleman by the name of Bill Metzger out of Confluence, Pennsylvania. Bill was retired, but he was world-renowned for moving large objects. And we contacted Bill, and he and his wife Pam agreed to spend a week out in Aztec. And we actually reenacted moving a craft of that size 
going out uh, from Heart Canyon down to uh, Libreth, uh, New Mexico, which would be the most difficult route to get a large object out. And uh, we did it several times, noting the pinch points along the way going through the canyons. And uh, and then, of course, using what tools they would have had in 1948, not today's technology. And we did this based on Frank Scully's book in 1950, where they talked about how the craft came apart and roughly the, uh, we're, we're estimating this, but roughly uh, the size pieces that would, it would be involved. So we, we spent a lot of time and money to reenact it to see if it was humanly possible. And it, obviously it was. Yeah, wow. So mm-hmm. we're out there, and you were um, doing this demonstration. D- did you happen to see any lights or any ships come to check on you while you were doing this? No, I've been going out to that crash site. I've been out there over 240 times in, in the last uh, almost 30 years. Um, now, oil field workers that uh, are out there all the time, uh, they have different story. They They have quite a bit of sightings out there. Unfortunately, I've never witnessed one myself. I've seen a lot of pictures, a daylight pictures, of objects that people have taken. Yeah. But uh, I myself have, have not. I would love to, but I have not. So let's talk a little bit about the physical evidence of this incident. How much of that is available? Well, quite a bit. I mean, if you go to the crash site today and anybody in your listening audience that wants to go there, uh, please go into the town of Aztec and either go to the visitor center or the library and get a map of how to get out there. But first and foremost, you must have four-wheel drive to go out Hart Canyon Road and get to the crash site. Uh, many people have tried in two-wheel drive, including yours truly, and it doesn't work too well. The weather changes out there quite rapidly. But with that said, when you go on top of the mesa today, uh, there's a plaque uh, off to the side of right where the craft came to a rest. And uh, you can see gouge marks in the rocks where something obviously slid onto that mesa. Uh, you know, if all the years of our research are wrong and it wasn't a flying saucer, which I highly doubt, something landed on top of that mesa. Um, also, we have pictures back to the original days back in the 80s, late 80s, where uh, trees were plowed down. They have since been removed and stacked to the side, but cottonwood trees uh, were plowed over and the, the, re, the, the old remains and pinion trees also. And their they're petrified trunks, so to speak, after all these years are all stacked over to the side. But you can clearly see an impact where something came through. Uh, you claim to have over 55,000 documents pertaining to this incident, and what type mm-hmm. of documents are they? Well, they're everything from uh, notes of interviews of people uh, that were either firsthand or secondhand. Uh, we have, uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, a lot, you know, hundreds, of, if not thousands, of Air Force documents that talk about uh, the radar bases, the sightings in that area. Uh, CID, Army, uh, uh, FBI, CIA, Uh, there was actually a sting operation done in downtown Denver, Colorado, where the FBI, CIA, and Army Counterintelligence Division 
tried to intercept a person selling black and white pictures of the Aztec crash to a reporter. And it's interesting that all those agencies, uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, other than the Army, coughed up appropriate uh, documents. Really? About, yeah. And <laughs> we, have cop- we have copies in the book. Um, I, I, we don't have enough time tonight, but just that chapter alone we could have a whole radio show on. Um, because in their documents, they, the person that was allegedly selling the black and white photos at the end, uh, he himself claimed he was drunk and pulling a hoax, but all the reporting uh, government officials said that they didn't believe that. They didn't think he was drunk, and they thought he had the pictures. Wow. So huh. it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of evidence, and as time goes on, uh, you know, we, the first book shook a lot of people out of the woodwork, so to speak, and that's where we got basically a third of this new book is new. And it's new information based on people coming out and contacting us and saying, hey, I might have a piece to, to add to this. And Don't you think been, that people are not as afraid as they used to be? Or or do you think maybe the powers that were, I call them the powers that were, mm-hmm. uh, maybe are getting ready to allow people to come forward with these stories because disclosure might be you know something that's, they're thinking about having now on the planet. No, I don't. I think disclosure is a great, a great tale that's been spun by a few UFO researchers, so they can have a big conference in D.C. Um, no, there's no way. It, it's actually more and more difficult now to do a Freedom of Information Act than it was 20 years ago. Oh, really? I didn't. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. It, anybody that spent time at Maxwell Air Force Base, even getting on the base to do research, is much more difficult. Um, so, any thoughts? To do, I, as a matter of fact, I'll give you a good example. I went to the FBI to get the entire file folder on Silas Newton and Leo Gaybauer, who are two key players back in the original 1948 crash. Yeah, tell us a little bit about them. Well, okay, but let me finish my thought on, on how how tough it is now to get documents. We went to the FBI back, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years. We got the Silas Newton documents. A friend of mine had already declassified through Freedom of Information Act, uh, Leo Gaybauer. We came back again the second time roughly three or four years ago. They refused to give us Leo Gaybauer's files because of some new law they transferred his files from the FBI archives to the National Archives, which is extremely difficult to get into. And they cut the 368 pages on Silas Newton down to about 50 or 60. Much more heavily redacted, removed any traces of the word UFO flying saucer. So when I hear these people get up and talk about disclosure is coming, disclosure is coming, these are people that have probably never been to an archive and have not had a history of going places trying to get things declassified. It is very, very difficult today. Wow. I didn't realize that. I have never mm-hmm. done any research like that myself, so I was uh, unfamiliar with that. Yeah. I, I so, think it gives um, us a good Suzanne, are you there? She's right here. Hang on. Okay, Suzanne. Hello? I, I wanted to ask you, uh, did you ever get to meet uh, Frank Scully? We did not. None of us did. Oh, okay. But my goodness, I tell you what, what an interesting man. What a Tell us a little bit about what you know about him. <clears throat> well, I I'm glad you asked me cuz I'm I'm kind of a I'm enthusiastic about some of the work that he's done. 
he was um, injured in a, uh, as a young man, he was injured in a football injury, had an injury to his leg, and ended up having his leg removed. Then years later, due to an illness, had an arm removed. Uh, I'm sorry, a lung. And he he ended up um, writing and all types of books and all types of work. He wrote for Variety magazine. A lot of us are familiar with that, but it's very different today than it was then. But he traveled all over the world. He earned his living by writing and um, held some very prominent positions. And But what was so interesting to me was that people, when they were in trouble, whether it was people that he knew or people that were in the public eye or um, neighbors, they would come to him and they always felt like they could confide in him. I always wondered why it was that he was the chosen one out of everybody else in the world to release this information. But when you study him, he really was a person that could keep a secret, and he did. He kept a secret on who the... the um, scientists that worked on the project till his death even after you know there's just no we've tracked it down but it wasn't because he he showed his hand at all he he was very faithful but he he could keep a secret he could be very articulate had a whimsical way of writing and and um was very specific in when he said things and so uh fascinating man really what a life he lived handsome big guy and had a big family and and kind of at one point ran with the Hollywood crowd, but but just a very, very interesting person. And I think they chose who to tell this to. I wouldn't have probably picked him, but I think they chose very, very well. I probably would not have even thought about him. You know, when I look at his last name, I, it, it makes me smile because of, uh, you know, Scully and Mulder on the x Yep, <laughs> yep. That's, that's actually Chris Carter kind of did a spoof on that um, and, and named Dana Scully after him. Uh, that's, I wondered about that. Yeah, mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey. There, there are so many people related to this. One of the things, and I, and I know there's short time, but that is so amazing about this story and why it's so spectacular is that over the years we've been able to take this from not just a sighting, which a lot of a lot of UFOs, you see a sighting, but you don't get to hear the whole comprehensive story. Even and above, and I hate to even bring up Roswell, but Roswell, you don't get to see the comprehensive story. Roswell is a story that's well covered, but not the comprehensive story. We're able to track the police officers, the scientists that saw these crafts before the crash for months, then to be able to see who the witnesses at the crash site and just before it crashed, inside the craft, um, how they took it apart, how they transported it, uh, where you know where now where it went, we we have to speculate on, but we clearly say that if we can't document something, then we say this is where we guess that it went. Um, but you're going to find all facts in our book. Then to take it to the scientists, the worldwide scientists that were brought in to work on this craft. And then some of the things that came because of this, Texas Instruments, for instance, came about because of this crash. Um, There's some physical evidence that on our last trip we were able to find where it actually scraped a bluff. Um, A a rancher had seen it before, before it crashed. 
um, the impact, I'm kind of jumping around and I apologize, but the impact that it had on people's lives and how they were turned around. And I hesitate to use this word because it kind of gets overused a lot of times, the conspiracy, but there truly was a cover-up and a conspiracy. And we were able to unveil that piece by piece by piece with documents and and um, eyewitnesses and, and information. So it's really a, a full circle as opposed to so many times you only get a snapshot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So if this crash was an intact craft with witnesses, then why haven't we heard much about it? Well, and that's where it would take a while to describe, but <clears throat> there, I want to choose this because I want to do it in as few words as possible. It, it happened after Roswell. Of course, Roswell, they, they kind of shot themselves in the foot. They exposed information, then they retracted it, and you know all of that went on. Well, a year later, you got to figure out that they know how to cover up and how to do handle these things better. You know, they have a, a system in place. And and um, it was being uh, exposed by Scully. However, there was a competing um, journalist that wanted to do the story. And Scully was doling it out in different articles and different magazines and things, pieces piece by piece, as he was getting ready to do the book. Well, this particular gentleman, um, J.P. Kahn, worked for the San Francisco Chronicle. And he was a very, very wealthy man and never had to work a day in his life and just kind of wrote for fun and, and was involved in the newspaper business for fun. Well, he heard about Scully's story and approached Scully and said I'd like to I'd like to take the story and Scully said no I'm not really interested. Well, uh, JP felt like he could convince Scully. So he more or less shot off his mouth. Kind of a big shot and well, I can take care of this and you know, 10,000, you know, dollars and we'll we'll just take care of this. We'll just consider it done. Well, he shot off his mouth and then Scully refused to give him the information and, and to expose the information and said, if you can write a book, why can't I? Well, J.P., again, a man of means, wealth and means, went about a discreditation of the scientists, about Frank Scully and everyone else, to the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, and were able to document all of this, Um to discredit him so that the story kind of got buried and and appeared to be a hoax. Well, when you go through and you actually see some of the correspondence that goes back with J.P. Kahn, and, and he'll as much as tell you, um, you know, that he's, he's out on a vendetta. Um, we were able to, Scott was able to interview uh, J.P. Kahn's best friend and and it's just fascinating to know how a person can be so ego-bound that they can destroy a whole group of other people and, and have a big impact on history. Yeah, well, we've seen a lot of those characters walk through history, yeah, haven't we? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You're right. And just think of how different history would be if if they would have behaved themselves. <laughs> yeah, true. So you were able to track down these scientists and... Um, tell us a little bit about them. Did you meet them in person? No, no, uh-uh. 
Uh, most of them are are dead. Most of them, okay. <clears throat> well, they're all dead now, but um, but by the time we got started on this. So did they, they did they leave some um, information behind in writing that verified what they had found? That's a good question. Scully describes in his book many of the scientists, and he gives you clues, but when you just read it, like I said, it, it he comes off almost like whimsical. You wonder, now, why did he say that? So Scott started this process, and then myself and, and Dr. Thayer have taken him painstakingly every single statement that Scully said, taken and digested it, and followed up on it. And holy cats, it's like a, really? Honestly, it's like a treasure map. You get so excited because you look at this and you think, now what does this mean? And you follow up and it leads you to the right people um, and who the scientists were. And then the descriptions that he has, as you go back and you, and we've traveled, is it 29 states, honey? Something like that, 29 states, um, doing research, when you go into these scientists' archives and see where they were at the time, what they were doing, what their backgrounds are, I mean, they're clearly the right people. Um, but again, we have been busy for 29 years. <laughs> I noticed that, in the book that uh, one person kept saying that, yeah, there were two police officers there, and then other people said they weren't. So what did you finally find out about the police officers? Well, Actually, uh, several people said two police officers, but and, and they all felt it was police officers, but they didn't know both police officers. They knew one, but not the other. Well, this is rural New Mexico, 1948. I don't. Have you ever been to New Mexico? Yeah, I used to live there. Oh, where did you live? I, I've lived in Rio Dosa, um, and I've lived in Santa Fe. Okay, and, then uh, you know you know rural New Mexico. Not a lot out there. (laughs) There's not a lot out there. Some of those unimproved roads are not any more improved now than they were. But so the likelihood in a small area like that, I suppose like any place rural in New Mexico or in uh, the United States, you know your law enforcement. If you live in that area, you know everybody. And they couldn't figure out who, how it was in this, you know, those police officers covered a wide area, a lot of miles. And they couldn't figure out why there were the two, the one they knew, who was this other police officer? And it was the the officer that had come up from Cuba, New Mexico, which is south and um, east of of, uh, Aztec. And he had followed it through the night, followed this craft that was hovering and and, uh, struggling. And so he was on location. They just didn't know where he was from. And here it was from Cuba. That's why he was out of their, their jurisdiction. Huh. How about so, how about the oil field workers that were like 18 and 19 at the time? Are some of them still alive? Um, they were when we started. You know, almost 30 years, a lot happens in that time. But we were able to visit with some of them. And it was fascinating because they were young, and it was a time, you know, Scott was describing to you that that the, uh, they didn't know what to think of the saucer and of the craft. And just about that time, helicopters were being released to the public. So think about what a different era and different time that was that they had not even ever seen a helicopter. When, helico- when a helicopter came 
with the military, they weren't sure which they were more fascinated with, the flying saucer or the helicopter. Well, clearly today we'd be more fascinated with the um, saucer because we're accustomed to seeing heli- or helicopters. So do you know what I mean? It's they They were amazed and shocked, but they didn't have any idea what to think about it. And it was kind of interesting, too, because some of the older, more mature age witnesses stood back as the younger ones crawled all around on it. And they were yelling, get off it, get off the, the that thing, you know, you don't know what it is. And they were worried, of course, i got to say, I've got a few years on me, and I might be a little more inclined to say that today, too. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um... Let me ask you how how do you um, how do you feel about releasing this information and talking about it? And do you get intimidated by what other people say to you about it? Are you strong in your in your delivery with um, your research? What, how, how has this benefited you as a person? Oh my goodness, Scott and I have been married. How long we've we been married? Twelve. Twelve years, and we have been working on this that entire time. Aside from our honeymoon, a couple days on our honeymoon, we have worked on this every single day. And it's our personality type. We both came from research and history families. Entire as adults about the fact of people misinformation or changing history or, well, that doesn't meet to our standards or that's not politically correct, so we're going to go ahead and change it. That's not how we are. We really want to have accurate information because it's important. Things happen, and if you don't learn from them, you know, they do repeat. So there is a passion that we have. You know, we have full-time jobs. We have a life, very full life, but we find time every day because this is an important part of history that's not been well documented, and it's tragic because... It's 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 just it's just fascinating. Well, it, it, it's become a passion of yours. I can tell both of you, and and we need people that have the the integrity, the passion, and the directness to stay true to the to the scientific information. And that's well, what we've is. really been needing is scientific data on some of these stories that are coming out, not the fluffernut stuff that we hear from a lot of people. You know what I'm saying? I do, I do. That can be substantiated. So well, we really so take sad. our hat off to you for staying true to this mission uh, of, of bringing this story to light. Thank you. We really appreciate it. We, It's just, you know, we don't have children, and I personally look at this as the energy that we might have put into children that, we're putting into documenting this part of history. And, and this helps the children that are coming to the planet. And this helps the children that are here already with questions. But That's how it. about the new kids that are coming? I say you're paving the way for their understanding. Well, we hope so. And I tell you, in a world today that uh, either through many of the media resources or certainly through the Internet, they can use, be useful tools, but so many... Um, change and modify or um, heavily weigh one way or the other what their belief system is. And this is not a belief system. This is just pure fact and history. 
And, you know, I always look at when people go to do research. I remember writing in a van one time with a young man, and we were on our way to a conference to speak. And he said to me, he said, you know, he says, I'm really excited. I'm going to write a book. I've been on the, I've been doing some research. And I said, good for you. What's going on? And he started telling me, and he says, I spent about five hours on the Internet, and I think I pretty much know all that I need to know. <laughs> oh, and, you know, I just kind of reached out and kind of grabbed his arm and just kind of squeezed it, and I said, well, I said, you know, there's a lot more to it. And, and the Internet is subject to someone's in, uh, interpretation and their opinion, and it's not something that you can necessarily count on. You know, I'm not saying all of it is, but I said you really have to look very, very carefully. You know, you don't want to squash someone's enthusiasm, but on the same token, <laughs> the Internet cannot be your resource for everything. No, that's exactly. I mean, it's nice that we have it because right. it does open a lot of, of, of information for us. But, of course, you know, you just have to pull up your sleeves and, and, and go get it yourself in, in, in the old-fashioned way, I believe. Yeah. It is. It is. And and that takes time and that takes, you know, focus and and it's very easy to get bored and I don't know what that says about Scott and I if we're schizophrenic or or what we are. I'm not sure <laughs> the fact that that we have, you know, focused on this and and just have focused on this one thing, but um well, I'm so glad that you have. And let me ask you, are, are you writing a screenplay? Is there a movie that could be made uh, with this uh, information? Well, that's something that I'm always very interested in. I, I think that it would tell a, a really... Yeah, I think I have a feeling that when this gets out there to the right people, people will find you and they'll want, they'll want to uh, sit down and talk to you about writing a screenplay. We have a lot of people that listen to our show Mm-hmm. that are in the film industry. We have a lot of writers and producers and and a lot of people get material from our show, by the way. Sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, you might I, be contacted, I, you know, early in the next 2 or 3 weeks from from people listening to our show and I hope and I hope that's the case. Oh, well, thank you. I I appreciate that. I I think that good information to get it out in a quality way is very very important and it's amazing how many people have approached us, whether it has been um, in the media or it's been in documentaries and things, and we have done a lot of that, but but when people approach us and they say, and what about this, and, and will this probably happen, and, and try to whip it into a frenzy more than it is, and I can tell you, and, and it sounds like you're familiar with the story, there's so much here, you don't need to mess it up, <laughs> you know, it's it's not something that you have to alter no. to try and make it more exciting. It is spectacular, and um, it, it's just it has kept us wound up for for all these years, and and we sure have enjoyed it. Well, that's that's good. Do you have? Um, is this a retreat? Or do people show up there? And and I mean, is there a, is there a place where people come? You know, like in Roswell, they meet once a year on July fourth. So do you have people showing up on March 25th? We used to be involved in a symposium in Aztec that was a fundraiser for the local library to build a new library. Yeah. And um, and that used to occur. And my goodness, really some fine speakers and, and top-notch research-oriented, you know, more than anything. And um, that has has kind of faded. 
Um, but there, there is a plaque that we've put up there, and you can go hike. And I will tell you this, if you have no interest in the topic whatsoever, if you just hike up there and look, you can see the La Plata Mountains. You, having lived in New Mexico, will know what I mean. can see the La Plata Mountains that have snow almost all year round. You can see the view is just... It's incredible. Um, I've been there. I've seen it. Yes. It just it just blows your mind. And so if you have a friend that's interested and you're not interested, go anyway. It's a great hike, beautiful and and um it's just <laughs> it's just a really neat experience. It really is. Fresh, clean air. Well, if you've lived there you or been there, you've known that. You yeah, know, that's right. Just, you know, um Los Alamos, don't you know? that the the ETs were very, very interested in what those scientists were up to at Los Alamos. Oh, wonder gosh. they were circling around. This? And a, a few years back, when they had a big fire at Los Alamos, mm-hmm. and uh, it showed the trees um, being lit up in bright red and green and all these beautiful colors as the trees were burning, and people were going, oh, isn't that pretty? And I'm going, yeah, pure radiation. <laughs> Yeah. That's atomic Boy. radiation coming from the trees. Did you did you see that ha- happen when that when that fire happened there in New Mexico? Yes, I did. I know I know what you're saying. I didn't think of it in that framework, but yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Boy. I mean, how many trees have you seen light up in colors? You know, uh-huh. like that. Now, in my fireplace, I'll put stuff in to make it glow like that. But right, right. But radiation. But you have to. Yeah. You have to. You have to interfere in order for that to happen. That doesn't happen in nature. Yeah. yeah. Right. That whole deal with with Manhattan and and all of that and at Los Alamos, what a fascinating deal! I, and like you said, can you imagine those ETs? They must have thought either a question mark, what are they doing, or oh my gosh, what are they doing? You know? <laughs> oh man! Well, the story that 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 Anastasia told earlier about the solar panels and how the how that town voted against them. Don't you know they're scratching their head over something like that? <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know. Well, there's so many silly things we do, and I think that our egos get in the way so often. You know, that's we're we're just gonna we're just gonna make things better, and I don't know that we always do. You know. Well, I I would like to at this time uh, thank you and Scott, and I would like to um, ask Ariel, my co-host, to come on. She has the switchboard, and if there's anyone that would like to uh, come on and ask either one of you a couple of questions, would you be able to do that for us for a few minutes? I'll be happy to, and I tell you what I'll do is, if a question comes in and I feel like Scott's better to answer it, I'll hand it to him and vice versa, okay? All right, great. So thank you so much, and I really uh, appreciate the the time and energy and all these years that you've taken to devote your time to this book. I think it's a very wonderful book, and I'm encouraging all of our listeners to um, to pick it up, The Aztec UFO Incident, by Scott Ramsey, Suzanne Ramsey, and Frank Sayre. So back to you, Ariel. Hi, Ariel. Hello. Hello. Well, this is just fascinating because, like you said, I mean, it seems like, you know, Roswell um, was their first time and they didn't do it right. So when it happened again, um, you know, as far as covering up, they got a lot more crafty because I have, I mean, and we've been – Talking about UFOs for years on this show, never once heard of this one. Yeah. yeah. So well, it, they and did you know, a good job covering it up, and you've done a good job uncovering it. Oh, thank you. It, it, I tell you, there were more than one time when we thought, hmm, <laughs> maybe this is it. Actually, I have to tell you a story, funny story. When Scott first was introduced to the story, 
he was told by uh, a couple natives in that area that um, that were talking about, well, I'm going to go down and we're going to go hunting at the old crash site. And he overheard that his first time to Farmington, which is an adjacent city. And he said, what's that? And they told him. And he thought in his mind, oh, I'm going to go take a look out there. And then as he walked around, he figured, in eh, six months I'll have this. I'll either be able to prove it or disprove it. Well, you know, thank goodness we have those youthful silly thoughts because <laughs> it keeps us motivated. If we were a little older, we might not be so optimistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of a thing. Once you once you take the lid off, there's no turning back. No, and it certainly no. does sound like like a um, you know a passion and a and a need to know, and bringing that truth to you know the light of day in the public. Uh, gosh. I mean, to spend 29 years, this really is a, a major accomplishment for you, bringing, bringing light to a subject that a lot of people never even heard about because it was so well covered up. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, disinformation and all that. So um, I would just want to take a moment here to tell our audience that if you are already on the switchboard and you have a question or comment for either Suzanne or Scott, You'll need to press 1 on your keypad so we know you want to come on the air. And if you're listening on your computer, then you'll need to dial 917-889-8292. And then once you're in, press 1 so we know that you want to come on the air. And um, <clears throat> I remember, Frank, or, sorry, Scott, you said that, uh, that you have yet to see, have a sighting um, on your own. What about you, Suzanne? Um, I have never, but I have never seen one, but I, my mother, it's kind of funny how this all weaves together. When I was a child, I lived in South Dakota, originally from Chicago, and then we moved to South Dakota. And as a small child, my mom would read, and then we'd talk about whatever she was reading at the time. And she, I don't know how she got Frank Scully's book. But um, it was in the 60s, so it was after considerably time after it was released. And she was reading that book, um, Frank Scully, Behind the Flying Saucers. And, excuse me, Behind the Flying Saucers. And um, she would talk about it. And then my parents ended up moving to Aztec because of that. They decided they were going to move to a warmer climate as they, you know, reached their retirement years, and they decided, well, let's move to Aztec. And my mom was just captivated with that. She got to Aztec, and she was so grossly disappointed because no one talked about it. People were either embarrassed or behind the uh, bush, they might talk a little bit about it, but um, a lot of people said, oh, that's just silly, that's just silly, you know. And my mom thought, oh, I thought this was so cool. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, a lot of people um, would be fearful to to talk about what they know, especially considering the time period. Yeah, and, oh, yeah. Uh, there and, were and a lot sure of threats. Th- yeah, well, and then I'm, you know, I'm sure the, the, uh, the, the government and all the various branches um, did their jobs of um, intimidating people into silence. So... Yeah, I mean, not surprised that she got there and it was like it, nothing had happened there. It was just another town because yeah. that was probably well, by design. I think I think it was, and I think a lot of times the government, you know, 
they, they say for national security, and, and honestly, some of that had to be for national security. You know, we'd sure like to have all that information available, but but I think some of that, and I use that term specifically, some of that was in an effort to keep our national security. And and um, so, you know, that's, that's a tough, I don't know, if, if we were in those shoes, where we would be or what decisions we'd make. Um, we have had the military be... Um, helpful to us as we have gone about in our research down at uh, Maxwell Air Force Base. We have done considerable research, especially Scott, and um, going through the archives and things, and that's really that's really been a benefit for us. But like you said, there were they did, clearly they threatened the people that witnessed it and said, do not talk about this. And so, and, and it's funny, years later, I was in visiting back in New Mexico, and I was talking to a journalist friend of mine, and I called her and I said, you were in the area at the time. She was old enough to be in the area at the time, and I said, tell me what you, tell me what you know. And she got very, very upset, and she said, no good can come from this. And she said, I'm, you just need to walk away from this. And I said, well, no. You know that's that's certainly your opinion, but would you share anything? You know I don't have to say where it came from or anything, and and she was not interested at all. So all these years later, it was still yeah an issue for her. Yeah, yeah. I mean you have to consider you know it was 1948, and and then sure you know, years later she still obviously it was a it was a traumatic thing, and. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I can see that in that time frame, um, you know, considering where our technology was, I can see the national security um, perceived uh, threat. Um, but I don't know that that really flies too much today. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, you know but I mean? it did at the time. I think it did at the time. At least it was a yeah. factor. Um, Absolutely. You know, there was a lot going on, and. And uh, and it was such a different world then, you know. You just didn't have a lot of the outlets. You didn't have a lot of the technology. You didn't have, you know, it was just a very, very different world. And and I think that's hard sometimes for young people to to connect with that. That's why I, I want to heavily emphasize the fact that, you know, that was when helicopters were first released. You know, the they, there weren't a lot of phones in New Mexico at that time. Um or any place in the country, but certainly out there where it's, you know, it's pretty yeah, remote and and not. I mean, think about it, there was probably no television. Um, yeah, it, there wasn't very, much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So if you haven't, I mean, not today when you see all kinds of movies in the theaters and TV shows and sci-fi, um, it's it's a little bit more um, desensitized, I suppose. Um, but you know, well, I, I I think that that there, even though you haven't physically, you know, seen uh, what you would say is a you know bona fide UFO um, while you're out and about, I'm quite sure that they are aware of your efforts working for the truth, and um, you'll see one eventually. I'm quite sure. Well, it's funny because I've always felt, Scott and I, you know, I lived in Farmington, and he had come to Farmington about every six weeks. He was doing research, but he also was doing business while he was out there. 
And we must have, because I did work in the same building that he was at, and we must have passed each other in the halls. My goodness, I couldn't even give you a number of times and just never knew it. And, you know, how many coincidences, places that we were at, and then out of nowhere we came together. And how how did that happen, that my mother was so interested in this story? And, you know, how did that all come together? It just, I really feel like that and the fact that um, it's almost like sometimes we're kind of given gifts. And I, I can't really explain that, and that's going to be subject to interpretation for everybody, but um, I think of like this last trip. After we wrote the last book in 2012, and we felt like we've done everything we could, we've exhausted every avenue that we can. And and then Career Press approached us, and they said, we'd like you to do another book. So this wouldn't be self-published, but this would be, um, you know, a publisher working with you. And we t- we talked about it, we thought about it, and, and said, well, we could retool the old book, but, you know, we don't have a lot of information. And then we decided, you know, we'll go out to New Mexico one last time, and and we'll see. We'll see if we can if we can find some of the leads we've been looking for for years, but it's just never worked. Holy cats, we got out there. We found physical evidence. We found people that we have been trying to find for years, and we were able to locate them. It was, I mean, I can just remember standing on this one cliff when we found some stuff, and inside, we were so tired that we were just standing there, like kind of blowing in the wind. Yeah, <laughs> we'd, yeah. We'd been going so much, but and and we looked at each other, and Scott had just climbed down and on a cliff and had found where the saucer had scraped, and we had known that a a rancher had seen it first thing in the morning, but we we had never been able to get on the property. We'd never been able to find. You know, all of these things just didn't come together. And so by the time we got back, we were just, you know, you get back from a trip and you've got, you know, your responsibilities and your job and your home and everything. It was, we just, all we could do was sit down and, and just to, just let it flow. I mean, it was so mm-hmm. exciting how it, so much could change and and so much more information. And, you know, again, that arrogance that we have sometimes that after 29 years, well, we've probably gotten all that we can get, and son of a gun, here comes some more. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so you were just at the first plateau, and right. uh, you thought you were done, but you were, you're getting ready to go up another level. So now you've got the expanded, much expanded version with more information, more details, and... Um, uh, this is available at all um, national booksellers as well as um, uh, as hard copy and as well as online through Amazon and Barnes and Noble and places like that. Barnes and Noble and Amazon dot com and yeah, on Nook and um, Kindle and then yeah, like you said, both both um, e-books and then and then hardcover books. So. Well, excellent, it's, and I think I I, uh, I read in the um, the press kit you sent that you're you're working on a website to go with the book, but it's and this is all really really new. Right. I mean, the book coming out and and all that, but for now you're using Facebook. Have I interpreted that correctly? We've got Facebook, and it's the Aztec UFO incident. We're on Twitter, and then um, and the website should be up within the next week or so. So oh, cool. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So we're really excited about that too. Honestly, how much information we found in March and then to sit down and write it and function in a normal life and still try and get that all done, um, it, it it did catch us off guard. We just didn't, you know, we worked really hard to get to that point so, um, and get it done. So um, it's really been a pleasure working with the publisher and and um, their help, and, and it's it's just been a good yeah. experience. But I'll tell you what, I'm ready for a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, if you can't take a vacation over the holidays, then uh, you really... <laughs> You really are obsessed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for Take sure. Take easy, you know, enjoy the holidays. And um, I, I I know that this book is going to really answer a lot of questions for because we, I mean, we have a lot of, um, you know, MUFON, UFO um, type listeners in the audience as well as um, uh, just basically starseeds and enlightened people. So mm-hmm. I really I would encourage them to take a look at this book and um I hope you, we have the best of luck with this and we want to thank, thank you. you so much for joining us this evening. It does not look like we're going to have any callers with questions but um sometimes when you cover your material really well they really you've, you've answered all the questions so we so much appreciate your being with us this evening. Well, thank you for the honor of of us being spending time with you and your listeners and we wish you well too and a Happy holiday, and um, and just hang in there with trying to search for the truth, huh? It's out there, and you will know it when you hear it. That's right. That's, That's right. right. All right, well, folks. Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, thank you so much for joining us here. And on behalf of all of us here at Starseed Radio Academy, we want to thank you also for joining us. Remember, you have a holiday gift waiting for you if you want to go to starseedhotline.com forward slash holiday gift, um, some homemade um, Christmas album. It's me and my microchips. So help yourself and have a wonderful, wonderful preseason and holiday time. We will be back next week and uh, the week between Christmas and New Year's. We will be off the air, so... Uh, but we'll we'll be back next week. So once again, Suzanne and Scott, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to all of our listeners. Have a wonderful week. Happy holidays. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 